Welcome to the Guns, Gear, and Beer podcast. I'm your host, Derek Campbell of MoGuns.com, and I'm joined today uh, by Don from Greenline Factory. How are you doing today, Don? I'm doing good, Derek, man. Thanks for bringing me on. Thank you for coming. Get to talk about one of my favorite subjects and just a generally very cool subject altogether, which is night vision. Before we jump into all that, could you please tell us a little bit about your personal background? Um, well, where to start? I guess uh, I'm getting to be uh, one of the old guys. So uh, I, I joined the Army back in 1988, I guess. No, it was 87, late towards the end of 87. And I uh, spent my first uh, four years in uh, in the Ranger Battalions and uh, third Ranger Battalion. And I got out with a little break in service, ended up getting connected in with uh, Special Forces through the National Guard. Ended up actually retiring with a total of 22 years as a 18 series guy from a 20th Special Forces group. Uh, wow, that is awesome. And uh, done, you know, the interesting thing about being a, a, a guard guy or, or however you want to put it is is I had a lot of different things going on. So, you know, I, I taught um, full time for a, a program that the National Guard had here in Florida. But then I also spent eight years working uh, at the, the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center for the ATF. So I was one of their instructors at their academy as well. Um, for a while, and then, of course, the war was going on, so I spent a couple of those years deployed, you know, with uh, SF, and came back, did, uh, gosh, in 08, I joined a organization called the Asymmetric Warfare Group um, as a contractor, and then ended up transitioning over to a similar program um, that was more counter-IED-focused, but basically, we were advisors to, to the Army on uh, more or less counterinsurgency, and so I've done stuff like that off and on. Um, and been kind of connected with the industry since about 05 through friends and doing pro staff for different companies like Aimpoint and TNBC. And then, you know, when it was time to uh, see about the transition to a regular life, um, TNBC offered me uh, a job. And now I'm the, uh, the director of uh, law enforcement and military sales. And, uh, and I also run our training division at uh, TNBC as well. So I've been with TNBC a couple of years now. How much has the industry itself changed since when you first got involved back in 2005? Um, I'd say it's changed. It, it's gone up and down. I mean, when I first got involved, I was on the fringes. So I wouldn't say that I was really in kind of an insider in the industry. I was kind of, you know, pro staff was one step below boot babe, I think. A little bit better. Yeah, I'd go to, uh, go to or something like that and help out. And, you know, load boxes and unload boxes and stuff like that, terrain points and, and whatnot. So, you know, but have seeing it, I, I mean, I'd say for me, obviously I'm less starstruck. It used to be, you know, Jerry Mikulik would walk by and then I'd be like, oh yeah, there, there he is. Or whatever. <laughs> oh, whatever. Um, I don't know. I'd say it's changed a lot here in the past few years. Just, um, you know, we had a big surge, you know, yeah. in, uh, and, and black rifle related type stuff and, and even night vision. And now, of course, we're seeing, you know, things slowing down across the board. I think just, you know, everybody's feeling content and 
um, you know, companies are having to uh, do some serious, mm -hmm. um, serious work to, to earn their customers. I think there, there's not the, the sense of urgency that was very present a couple of years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Which is nice, you know, but it, it also means that, you know, companies either have, they have to, you know, you can't be lazy and still make a lot of money. You know, you yeah. can't, the, the people are not just going to knock down your door to buy whatever you have. They're, they're the, the public, I think is more discerning. Mm -hmm. uh, they're educating themselves more. Um, they're looking for quality, not just quality products. I think they're also looking for that service. You know, they want to, they want to do business with a company that, you know, they can trust, you know, they, we're getting back to some of the older traditional values, I think. And, um, you know, some companies that sprung up are, are getting a chance to learn what that's all about, if they can survive and companies that were, uh, you know, enjoying the, the, the heyday if you yes. know, are yes. having to remember, you know, some of the roots and get back. I mean, we are, you know, everybody's feeling it. Um, mm -hmm. I, that's when I first got involved with the, the industry was back in 2013 when there was uh, a big rush for everything. When everyone was convinced yeah. that they were coming for our guns and $700 ARs were going for $2,000. And so it's, it's good for the, it's good for the consumer, but uh, more difficult for the industry. It's just having to work harder. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, some people are kind of happy. They're welcoming the purge. You know I mean? I feel for the guys that are, are really struggling hard right now but you know i guess that's that's the market is you know kind of correcting itself yep yep has the night vision market been as fluctuating as just ar-15s have um we are i would say enjoying it to be or what's the best way to say it i don't think we're being hit as hard right now yet i think yeah. you know i mean i think some guys are like well now that i'm not worried about you know the guns let me let me maybe get that night vision i i wanted to buy a couple mm -hmm. years ago but i put off you know i mean i'd say still people are very discerning you know they, they always have been but uh you know night vision especially the the mbgs uh pbs 14s the sentinels and stuff that we you know we build in house and sell we're, we still can't hardly build them fast enough so um you know i, I think people that, are still very interested in that yeah yeah that is awesome. well i guess it only makes sense if you aren't worrying about having to buy pallets of ammunition thinking it's going to dry up you can divert your resources elsewhere right right i'm pretty happy about the ammo prices being reasonable again you know and i can get a, a case of 223 for under 300 bucks oh yeah yeah uh, there is i remember there was a time here in colorado uh when they're passing the magazine ban and magpul was leaving that uh 22 was it was like gold basically people were trading it for ridiculous prices yeah 22 is just now starting to come back i think yeah it's still still trying to catch up on it the, One of the downside is i think they're never gonna price is never gonna go back down to you know what it was when you know you could get a case of you know five five six for a couple hundred bucks but yeah yeah, yeah not not for a while anyway not not for a long while so you mentioned you went from uh ranger battalion to uh Special Forces, I've always wondered, is there a dramatic uh, culture difference between those two fields? There, yes. I mean, those two units, even though a lot of guys, you know, served in both units, you know, a lot of us start out in the Ranger Battalion mm -hmm. and end up transitioning over to other, other you know, SOCOM or even JSOC units. Um, so there's a lot of, a lot of guys, a lot of us trace our, 
our personal roots back to battalion. But uh, I don't think, you know, th there is a big difference. And um, I think, I don't know, I was one of those guys that uh, could I have made a career out of the range of battalion? Uh, yes. Am I more uh, put your hands in your pockets and, you know, put your Oakleys on top of your hat kind of guy? That's, that's, that's more more my personality. So I think my personality turned out to be a little bit more suited to be on an SF team. Um, but, uh, you know, Ranger is still in my the core of my soul, if you will. But, yeah, the, the Ranger Battalion is the closest thing the Army has to the Marine Corps, um, I think. Very, yeah, smash. Uh, smash. I mean, it, it's a very um, deliberate unit. It's very um, – I always tell people, it's, it's even though it's hard to get in the battalion, it's harder to stay there than it is to get in there. They have very high standards. You know, and we used to say, you know, you know, this is a volunteer unit. You volunteer to come here and you volunteer to meet our standards. And if you don't, we'll thank you and send you on your way. You know, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You know, you don't really get too many opportunities to screw up there. And, um, you know, and that's mainly because, you know, even before, you know, the GWAT, you know, the Ranger Battalion had, you know, one of the few, you know, real world missions, especially for a unit that was full of guys that, you know, were from E1, E2 on up, you know, not like SF where the lowest ranking guys, a staff sergeant on a team, you know, yeah. so with a real world mission like that, you know, our attitude was, you know, we don't need you that bad. And, you know, this time tomorrow we could be in a firefight. So if, you know, if you can't, if you can't cut it or you won't cut it, you know, move on. You know, and that was always the attitude. So it was it was like, it's not personal, bro, but, you know, you got to get out of here because, you know, we need somebody that can pull his weight. And, uh, you know, in other places in the military, you know, you'll get a lot more chances and stuff like that. And, and there it was it was easy to get uh, what they call RFS, which is relieved for standards. Wow. Yeah. Do SF teams have that same uh, continually high standard that must be met? They do. Um, but there's just a little bit more laid back attitude towards it, I think. And then also the fact that, you know, everybody on that team is, is already a seasoned NCO, um, before they even get there. So, um, a lot of things are, are kind of given that, uh, you know, standards will be met, but absolutely, you know, it, it is, it's just not, um, just the general attitude. Somebody told me a long time ago when I was, when I was still in range time, that, you know, being on a SF team is kind of like being on a, on a softball team. You know, nobody calls each other by their rank. It's always first name. You know, everybody just hangs out. It's, it's almost like not being in the military. And that's that's a big uh, a big difference. It's very uh, um, just laid back. It's like a, a group of guys who are good at their job, but they don't really subscribe to the, the Army's way of doing things necessarily, you know? Yeah. Yes, I, I definitely got that feel. Uh, one time last year, I was able to get a tour of uh, the 10th Special Forces compound from okay. some guys that I did some artwork for. They invited me over before they deployed. And having grown up in a military home and on various uh, bases around the country, it was it was definitely very different to see, as you mentioned, hands in your pocket, <laughs> T-shirts on. Yeah, it, you know, as long as you're doing your job and you're good at it, you know, when it's time to dress up and you know, be a soldier, you know, they know how. Yep. They don't yeah. get, you know, they don't lose any sleep over it. You know, it's time to go work, time to go work. And what about uh, 
the training course itself to get into the two units? How how different were they? Um, well, when I when I went to the range battalion, it was a little bit shorter, and uh, it was uh, the program was called RIP. It was the Ranger Indoctrination Program, mm-hmm. so it was more of a smoke fest just to see who who would quit, who wouldn't, and you know some basic knowledge and information and you know skills you know before you um, before you went there. Nowadays they have RAF, and I believe RAF is six or eight weeks long, and they they turn out guys that are actually, you know, have some skills. So they're, you know, there's a war going on. So it's more than just a gut check. It's a little bit more than a gut check. Now they actually, I'm pretty sure the first parts of it are still, I mean, I'm sure, sure it's still a gut check, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think somewhere along the line, they, they determine that when a, when a young ranger comes to his squad, he needs to be ready to deploy. You know, we didn't really have that in the, in the eighties. Yeah. <laughs> We didn't have the GWAT going on back then, so there was time for you to get trained and, you know, tutored and mentored and, and you know, prepared. Now, you know, a guy could have just a couple of months and he's, you know, on a plane downrange. That's, that's that's crazy. It's uh, it, it's uh, the kind of place that makes you grow up fast. That's why I kind of you know, equate it to, you know, the Marines in, in a sense that, you know, of course, I think range is better, but, you know. Um, <laughs> But uh, the army really, they're, you know, I'd say the 82nd Airborne and and possibly the 101st, you know, they're, they're, you know, there are squared away infantry units, but, you know, the range battalion is almost uh, fanatical in its, in its, uh, you know, quest for precision and perfection, you know. It it pays off though. It does. It does. And it's a culture, you know, and it, Mm -hmm. it, you know, it, it attracts the kind of guys that fit into that, that want that, that want to. Um, exceed whatever standard is laid out in front of them. You know, I mean, the pay is the same, so it's or, you know, so it, you could you could do a lot easier jobs and take home a paycheck in the army. So for someone to want to do that kind of thing, they've got to be driven to begin with. You know, driven for excellence. You know, so you know, when you're surrounded by guys that are just all alpha all the time, and you know, just wanna you know want to be better tomorrow than they were today. You know, it's it's not hard. It, it takes a good leader to, you know, to steer those guys and keep them on track. But uh, you definitely don't have to push them to get up and, and do their job. That is awesome. That is awesome. To uh, switch gears a little bit. Um, yep. I'm not I'm not an expert in night vision at all. In fact, I'm I'm really a noob and I've just recently gotten my first pair of uh, first set of PVS 14s. And normally we have some guys on the podcast that are experts as well. However. It's it's a guarantee whenever I post a picture of mine anywhere, uh, I get a lot of questions, a lot of DMs asking, uh, what should I do for my first one? I'm looking to get into it. Uh, what would you recommend someone who's looking to get into the expensive night vision game? What would you recommend their first steps be? Well, um, most people's um, entry into the night vision game, and, and, I, and I caveat this with it depends on how much you have to spend. Yes. You know, but for most guys, the PVS 14 is entry level. It's the most ubiquitous, you know, of all the night vision goggles. It's standard issue to, you know, the U.S. military infantry, you know, Army and Marines. Um, so there, you know, thousands yeah. and thousands of them out there. It's it's combat proven. Uh, it's a monocular, so it's less expensive. You can get into a good one, you know. From PVC or everyday low low prices, 
you know, for right around three thousand bucks um, for the for the goggle itself, and then, you know, to be a, a well-rounded startup, you know, with a laser for your rifle, um, a helmet if you don't need ballistic protection, you something like an Ops Corps fast bump helmet, and a mount. You know, you're looking at right around five thousand um, dollars, but that is a, probably one of the most common um, beginner entry-level setups um, that that we sell. You know, after after talking to guys, you know, someone will call up and ask me the same question. Pretty much you just asked. Um, hey, I'm looking to get into night vision. I think I want a PVS 14. Um, tell me the difference between these couple of models. We talk about that for a while and then they'll be like, tell me what else I need. You know, and we'll talk about helmets. We'll talk about mounts. We'll talk about lasers for the rifles. And, you know, pretty much no matter how you skin it, you're looking at more or less about 5000 bucks when it all adds up. You know, yes. A little bit more if you need a ballistic helmet, a little bit less if you go with a bump helmet or something like that. And just don't, I, I tell people all the time to just not even touch Gen 1s. They look appealing at a price tag of only two to $500. Yeah. But you're better off with a flashlight. Yeah, I'd say Gen 1 for sure. I mean, there's some good Generation 2 stuff out there that you can, you, you can save uh, some money. Um, the dangers there are um, they're more susceptible to light damage. Mm-hmm. So it, it's um, an investment. It is, you know, it is, and I and I get it. It's also an expensive investment. So if you know Gen Two is your budget, then I totally respect that and understand it. And uh, you know, I can help you figure that out too. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, the thing that you have to be aware of with Gen Two is just that it's not auto gated like Generation Three is. So when it's exposed to excessive light it won't uh, protect itself. It won't actually dim the power flow going to the tube to uh, protect itself from, from getting damaged. So you just have to be I, I can't cautious. imagine a more that crushing just, feeling than yeah. roasting a new tube. Yeah, you know, even if, you know, you save a thousand bucks, you still spent probably 2,000 on it, you know, instead of three. And, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, and, and when you when you, you fry the tube, it's it's not fixable. That's the thing, you know. When you damage it from looking at bright light, and you can do that with Generation Three, you know. And when we joke around, somebody says, "Well, wh- what do I need to be careful of?" It's like, don't look at the sun. <laughs> but uh, you know, even Gen Three can't take that, you know. But uh, but yeah, I mean, even then, you can do things. I mean, for example, some guys still like to mount it on the rifle behind an aim point or or an EOTech. But if you do that for a long period of time, you can burn that reticle image into. Your, yes, I. Uh... I have seen that. That's yeah. also unfortunate. It's right in the very center where you don't want yeah. the burn to be. Yeah, it's one thing to have a spot or a speck or something like that around the outer outer ring. You're normally not going to see that when you're looking at that stuff and, and moving around. You know, yeah, when it's a when it's a black spot, like somebody just took a sharpie pen and and put it right in the center of your lens. It's annoying. Yeah, especially yes. knowing that you know it could have been avoided. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cody Marple in the comments asked, would you recommend a single two PVS 14 to start and then get a second on a bridge mount later? Good question. Well, I actually, we talked to somebody, one of us talked to somebody probably daily about that. And generally speaking, you know, I, I recommend against dual mounting bridge mounting two PVS 14s. And the only reason is, um, it's heavy. So, you know, each PVS-14, gosh, I wish I had some specs in front of me. You're looking at about 16 ounces each. So now you're looking at, you know, you're looking at just over two pounds 
when you put the bridge mount and all that stuff. So, you know, yeah, if if for some reason you find yourself with two PVS 14s and you want to, you know, have the option to do that, I talk to a lot of guys, they'll end up doing that, or they're like, well, I don't really want binoculars. I'm buying a second PVS 14 because I want to have two PVS 14s. So can I bridge them together? So there there are plenty of good reasons to do it. Um, a lot of guys will say, well, when you're ready to buy a set of Sentinels, sell your old PBS 14 to help raise money for the Sentinels or something like that. I, I had that exact conversation with someone um, today. That's that's one way. So I don't know. The, the answer is kind of, it, it's up to you, but just, you know, look at all the different variables. You know, if you're going to use it a lot as a dual, then it would probably be um, wise to invest in a binocular style uh, device. If it's going to be something you think you do just occasionally, um, then then sure, why not? There there are plenty of bridge mounts that uh, that are not super duper expensive. There you know a couple you know you can get it for easily under five hundred and below for some of them that we carry. You can spend more if you want to, but mm-hmm. if it's just going to be something you do occasionally, then then sure you know why not? And one thing that we do you know not to pimp you know team C but not pimp you know, it. You, you want to try to match each one of those tubes. So so when say we're building a set of sentinels, the guys will go through um, all the tubes and they'll go through the data sheets and they will match up those tubes, you know, by by what the specs on the, the data sheets are, so that when they go into when they're paired up together, they're as close to the same as we can get them. Um, so um, guys that call and awesome. say, hey, I want to do that. I'm going to get my second PVS 14. I'm probably also going to get a bridge mount. And, and we'll have them, if they bought it from us, you know, we've already got their stuff on, on file and we'll pull up their old data sheet, you know, from their, uh, their current PBS 14 and try to make sure that the new one is closely matched to it. You know, so that's one thing. It's, it's just kind of a nice to have. I can also see that being very annoying after some time. If, if one PBS 14 was a slightly different tube than the other. Yeah. Especially if they're a lot different from each other or if they're different brands. Yeah. Because. You know, that's the other thing. If you have a, you know, a Harris, which used to be ITT on one eye and an L3 on the other, you're going to be seeing slightly different shades of green, you know. Yeah, that, um, that would get very annoying. That could, yeah, it could get annoying, if, especially if you do it all the time. If it's just something you, you think you're going to do every once in a while, but for the most most of the time, your your brother's going to have the other one. And, you know, it's just something you do whenever, you know, whenever you think about doing it, you know, it may not be that big a deal. But, uh um, it's, it's definitely something that, that quite a few guys do just because, you know, used to be, you know, having a PBS 14 was, um, a big deal. I mean, it still kind of is, but you know, you would be surprised how many people have a couple of PBS 14s and a Sentinel or this and yeah. that, and, you know, yeah. there's some guys with a, with a lot of stuff. So they just decide, well, it'd be kind of cool to, to make a bridge and, uh, and, you know, make a set of duels out of it so that my buddy could use those when we go out. Cause I got myself a new set of sentinels or mod threes or something it's uh it really is like like a drug and that's something that you never really intend to get into until you try it out and that's when you realize yeah it is it's it's a it is definitely one of those hobbies that once once you get hooked you're probably you know i mean if it's not a big deal to you you know you're lucky probably because yeah i know guys who have you know spent quite a bit of money and you know some guys they're they're into horse trading, so they're always just trading up. Yep, yep. Would you also say that um, thermals have gained popularity in the last few years of 
as they've become more affordable? Absolutely. And, and you hit the nail on the head. They've become more affordable um, and quality stuff has become more affordable. Um, that's the thing. You know, um, a couple of years ago, a company hit the um, hit the world called IR Defense. And now that, you know, they're they are Trigicon Electro Optics and yep. they started making, you know, their line of thermals with a 12 micron core, which, you know, nobody really had had that especially available to the commercial market so the sensitivity on those things was just amazing or i mean it is it still is amazing and you know the prices may seem high we're looking at you know on the low end about six thousand up to you know almost right around ten thousand depending upon the model but um guys who have been in in the army for a while and they're used to the old PAS 13s and stuff like that. You know, when they look through that, um, 12 micron core on an IR Hunter or something with a little bit of magnification, it's it's like magic. Yes. I remember the first time I looked through those, it was like incredible. Now, it's still expensive stuff. But uh, there's uh, another company, um, a line called Pulsar, yep. that our sister company carries. Um, and for the money, that is really good stuff, you know. And there's a lot of other stuff. Lear's starting to come out with some newer stuff that's smaller and should be less expensive. And so so that is one area where um, the uh, the qualities get better and better on the mid-range cost stuff. Um, I don't know about some of the really inexpensive stuff. The image quality may look good, but I'm not sure about the, uh, the ruggedness and durability. But, you know, it's, uh, it's definitely a, a growing market. Um, yeah. The, uh, the hog, the night vision hog hunting is the fastest growing segment of the, like the sporting or the hunting market um, since for the past two years, I think. So more and more guys are getting into it. Um, there's more gear that's suitable for that. Um, there's more, you know, stuff that's, you know, within reach, you know, I mean, if you're spending two or three grand for a thermal scope, I mean, the, you've got an AR-15 in your safe probably that costs that much. Mm-hmm. you know or two or three you know so guys are starting to realize hey you know if i just sold one of these noveskis or something that i've got five of you yeah. know i could probably finance a you know a decent little thermal scope for you know whatever and i'm not a thermal expert but but your observations are right they've, they've gotten better and better um still you know here's here's how we kind of differentiate the two because that's another thing we get as a is a we get phone calls. I get phone calls all the time. Hey, what's better, thermal or night vision? Like, well, it depends. You know, thermal is really good at uh, we call you know target detection. So I can look out across the field and I can see heat signatures. I may or may not be able to tell exactly what those are. Um, night vision is better at target identification, but I may not be able to see something if it's blending in with you know everything around it. Whereas thermal will make a pop right out. Yeah. So the the better the the better the um, thermal core is and and even you know some of the optics that are on on the uh thermal scopes the better you can you can figure out what it is you're looking at you know sometimes it's not that big you know not that big a deal but if you're trying to tell the difference between a hog and a calf out and out that's definitely something you want to distinguish between right right you know but if you know there's nothing out there because it's it's a cornfield or something you know and the only thing running around out there is something you're going to shoot then you know, that's a different story, but, you know, 
you know, telling the difference between, you know, a coyote and, you know, somebody's, you know, dog, you know, that's all situation dependent too. If you're, if you're around a farm, maybe you're worried about that. If you're, you know, out in the mountains or the deserts of Utah or Nevada, you know, yeah, the only things running around out there are foxes and coyotes. So last yeah. nowhere yeah. around, you know, <laughs> so, I, we got uh, one more question in the live chat before we close okay. out this episode, attack wreck asks any thoughts on the SWIR shortwave infrared technology of night vision um yes it's a it's a one of those little niche things that is right now to my knowledge it's only still being used by the military and only um certain like special operations types of units are are using it um what it is is you know in in the light spectrum you have you know you have ir near ir and so you have the short short wave ir is in a wavelength that um right now standard night vision cannot see it so but it is a wavelength of light so there are different types of sensors that have been developed to be able to see that and then different types of beacons and stuff like that that um only emit that type of signature so Okay, so organizations if, you know, that are if there's the possibility of the other side having night vision as well, you can still be exactly, exactly. That's unseen. because of the the uh, um, the prevalence of you know standard types of night vision, you know, around the world. If uh, you know you want to be able to be invisible to that, you know, your your strobe lights and your markers and stuff like that, you know, that's a good option. And then there's there's some other similar types of of uh of beacons as well they're thermal beacons different stuff like that and that's thermal beacon how does that work um i don't know (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, a lot of this stuff was is started to be used after i kind of stepped away from the game out on the ground but uh there's um you know there's a lot of stuff in the in the r d or or being fielded that you know is is not gonna make it out to the regular you know, population, nor does it really probably need to. I mean, do we need it for for hunting and fooling around in the woods and stuff like that? Probably not. I think if you if you need that type of technology, you're in a position to be able to get it. Um, yeah. Are you still Sorry. there? Yeah, I'm taking a swig of beer. Excellent. Excellent. This is the not enough people to drink on the podcast. Beer, beer. I mean, it's 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 this in the, the name. Beer and beer podcast, right? Absolutely. And with that, I think we'll close out this episode. Thank you so much for coming on, Don. Absolutely. It was great man, picking your brain a little bit. Uh, before we close out, me on. Oh, absolutely. I would like to remind everyone that we just uh, recently launched Guns, Gear, and Beard t-shirts that are available on our website at moguns.com. If you'd like to look awesome and let the world know what your priorities are, uh, you can get it for relatively cheaply uh while we still have a few in stock although they are selling pretty quickly thank you guys and we'll talk to you next time This episode of Guns, Gear, and Beer is sponsored by SouthpawTactical.com. 
Use code MOGUNS for a discount and to support this podcast.